Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, should we be worried about technological unemployment? Technological unemployment is unemployment caused primarily by changes in technology. So uh, a couple examples, well, like perhaps the classic would be the uh, horse and buggy being put out by the arrival of the car. So a new technology comes along and then the old skills are no longer necessary. And those people essentially would be put out of work. Right. And that kind of thing is happening all the time. Uh, just recently, we used to have people called travel agents that worked at travel agencies. And if you wanted to get a plane ticket, you had to like call these people up and do it through them. But of course, we don't do that anymore. We use the internet. We buy our plane tickets directly now. And uh, everything's cheaper as a result. Which I think points to like a really general trend that we see a lot of now that puts people out of business, which is the access to information, right? You used to go to a lot of specialized people that were the only ones that had certain information. So a travel agent would have a lot of resources about a particular vacation destination and, and good places to stay. And now you can search that so easily. Right. But yeah, another a completely different example uh, would be just, you know, traditional factory work gets progressively more and more automated. An example might be in a uh, car factory, just welding the car parts together. Sure. A person uh, used to do that. Now a robot does it. Right. Uh, even in the last, you know, 20 years or so, a lot of different kinds of stores. You remember Blockbuster. Nobody goes to Blockbuster. I, I don't remember that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's gone. It's, it's erased from your brain. Uh, I think there was probably a time when I was a child where we would go to a Blockbuster like once a week. And now... I, I mean, I, can't, I literally can't remember the last time I saw one, much less... Always stressing about late videos, too, that you'd have to return. Right, late videos. But now that's completely gone, obviously. Yeah. As our uh, most... As Tower Records is gone, yeah. as our, you know, the larger uh, bookstores the generally. The bookstores yeah. are gone. Borders is gone. Those, you know, stores employed a lot of people, clerks and uh, shipping people and uh, people who did advertising and everything like that. So all of these are examples, uh, very real examples, uh, some recent, some older, of... Uh, a new technology comes out and displaces some labor. Now, there is this is a pretty controversial issue, technological unemployment, and so that's not the controversial part. I mean, everybody agrees that new technologies uh, destroy old businesses and old jobs. The disagreement, I think, is over the scale or the overall impact on the whole economy right. of the, this. The economic effects, because do those people then just go out and get another job? Maybe they do. I mean, that's something that people uh, certainly have sort of assume that, uh, that those people are then going to, you know, stop uh, doing the horse and buggy, but they'll learn how to drive a car and become a car driver. Right. So from the perspective of the single, you know, horse and buggy driver, uh, it's a catastrophic event when they get put out of work. When the uh, car gets work. introduced. Right. right. But then from the perspective of the whole economy, you have a brand new uh, car economy that's formed that is itself employing lots of new people. So right, and it, that's uh, more efficient and better uh, than the horse and buggy economy that it replaced, so it's able to even bring more people in and, uh, and, and grow. So eventually, yes, if people are out of work, you know, presumably they're going to look for other jobs, and presumably the new technologies themselves will create new jobs, and so... You would expect in most cases, and this is, I think, the standard economic logic, that this would only lead to what would be called frictional unemployment. Right. Like a kind of temporary unemployment where uh, you're a worker who's now been eliminated by something, but you're going to find another job. So either you're retraining or you're looking for work, but you're in that temporary unemployed state 
uh, but you're going to you're going to find that car driving job at the other end of the tunnel. It's just frictional. It's a temporary thing. It definitely affects some people's lives greatly, but the economy as a whole keeps moving forward. Jobs get destroyed, but plenty of new jobs get created. Right. That's an attitude toward the effect of technological unemployment, but it's not really the attitude that we have, is it? Uh, uh, yes. Well, or, you know, there's a perspective on this that suggests that technological unemployment might eventually lead to structural unemployment, which is a form of employment that is what economists would consider more permanent or more longer lasting. Yeah, where it's not just a matter of people getting uh, pushed out of uh, their job and then having to go get another one. It's uh, There's some significant fraction of people who got pushed out of a job and are never going to get another one. They're either too old or uh, they don't have the right skills that match with the economy. So they become long-term unemployed. So it's a fundamental mismatch uh, between the people that want to work and the work that's needed. uh, And so that's what creates a structural uh, problem. Uh, And then I think there's an even more extreme view that I think is plausible, but that is definitely, I think, not popular with economists, uh, which would be the sort of end of work scenario, which is that we're literally on a path over time to just automating more and more of the jobs that humans used to do to the point that we can expect that essentially we're on a road to permanent unemployment for most, if not all people. Right. This is a really extreme view. And obviously it takes sort of a long uh, gaze into the future to imagine it. But this this view has been uh, written about. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book about it. It's uh, something that even uh, the economist Keynes wrote about, right, in his uh, sort of end of economy. Uh, right. He wrote an right? essay uh, called, I think, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, in which he talks about this term technological unemployment directly. And he kind of discusses a time which he imagined to be about 100 years out from when he was writing it, which puts I think it was us, in the 30s, right? Yeah, which puts us pretty close to now, actually. Yeah. Uh, in which he imagined that there would just be such. Uh, high levels of productivity and such a, you know, a surplus of wealth that uh, really, you know, his grandchildren wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, have jobs available for them. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it is a matter of scale. How many jobs are we losing to technology versus how many are we creating either due to technology or due to other forces uh, that are now, you know, Slack resources that are now available. And, you know, my sense is that we're destroying jobs through technology at a, at a faster and faster rate. Technology is changing very rapidly. And so if that's the case, then the frictional unemployment becomes actually very significant because the frictional unemployment, just to remind you, is the time when you've lost your job and you need to find a new job, you need to perhaps gain new skills, right? Now, if those new skills and that new job are themselves a moving target because those new jobs themselves are being made obsolete very at a rapid pace, um, you kind of almost end up on a treadmill where you're constantly looking for new work, or at least that's the potential. Right. By the time you finish a skill acquisition pl- program of some kind, you might already be obsolete in that job. That job might have been automated in the time that you took to learn it. Right. And or the new skills may just be beyond you. So, for example, the new jobs that are created uh, might be created at a higher skill level. I mean, the obvious you know analog that we have today for video rental is, say, Netflix. Right. But you, that worker is not going to become a Netflix programmer, right? Right, right. Well, in the classic example of why um, technological unemployment can't exist, you're talking about uh, this horse and buggy operator who loses his job because the car comes out. But he can retrain 
and he can learn to drive a car because fundamentally a car and a horse and buggy are very similar. The engine is different. The fuel is different. The reliability is different. You but feed both, them different things. You feed them different things. But both things require a human pilot with the same basic type of human skills like sight and pretty fast reflexes and arms uh, and legs. So, you know, there's there's a lot of similarity actually between um, a car and uh, a horse and buggy. But I think when we're talking about Netflix and Blockbuster, somebody who's a clerk at Blockbuster cannot retrain to become a web developer for Netflix in the kind of time that a buggy operator can retrain to be a car driver. Similar to that is that in, in past revolutions, like when everybody got off the farm and uh, started working in factories, at least in the developed world, there was like a 20 or 30 year period of change there where it was, it was basically a generational change. So maybe your dad used to be a farmer, but you grew up being a factory worker. And we don't have that kind of time now because uh, technological change is causing paradigm shifts in jobs quicker than that 20 year time frame. So again, by the time you, you might go to a four year program, you might have the capability to learn a new skill. By the time you get out of that four year program with your new skill, that skill might be obsolete now, which is something that was never, never had to be dealt with in the industrial revolution time. Right. So literally the pace of change, I think, might be the primary difference between now and the past. Right. And uh, that's, of course, driven by computing technology, which touches everything. You know, unlike in the Industrial Revolution where you had to build one machine to do one purpose and it didn't necessarily generalize to another machine, now we have computers and the same economic trend that's pushing computers to get faster for one purpose is pushing them to get faster for every purpose. Right. Computers are clearly the the engine that's driving all this rapid change and disruption that we're seeing because computers are a general purpose technology. They're not, you know, a single innovation like the car. Our cars essentially are becoming computers just like our phones have become computers already, mm -hmm. just like almost everything we own seems to be slowly becoming a computer or being swallowed by the computer in some fashion. Right, and we're not the only people who uh, have this opinion that things might be different this time, right? There's a pretty good book out by uh, Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson called Race Against the Machine that came out a couple years ago that uh, covers some of these effects that we might expect from Right, and, and their argument has, I, I think, essentially three prongs to it uh, in terms of trends that they see occurring today. Mm -hmm. um, one is that uh, the value of capital relative to the value of labor. Right. Meaning that, you know, it's, it's much more valuable to have control of capital uh, than it is just to have the uh, actual skills and free time. Right, that and that's labor. also being driven by computers because uh, machines that learn, which we have now, you know, deep learning uh, for computers are in some ways more valuable than, than human employees now in some, you know, in some parts of the economy. Right, and if you own those machines, which would be a form of capital, then yeah. you're in a much better position than if you don't. Right, well, that's the specific yeah, use yeah. of capital that seems to be dri you know, driving this, this value increase. Uh, another trend is the idea of high-skill labor is becoming much, much more valuable. I mean, it's always been more valuable than low-skill labor, but yeah. they seem to be that gulf uh, is widening. spreading even further yeah. apart. We do have a lot of new jobs being created uh, in, say, the programming field, which is a very high-skill field that... Yep maybe everybody could be trained for. It's hard to say whether that's possible, but 
uh, certainly our education system has not been training people for right. that. It's not the way the world works now. Uh, so we're not well equipped to uh, meet that demand for programmers, uh, even if it is out there. Yeah, but each of those programmers, because of all the computers in the world, can reach so many people, their abilities uh, multiply and they're just so valuable. Uh, and sort of the third prong to the uh, McAfee-Brynjolfsson argument is the superstar effect. Right, which is a generalization of that idea that like... Right, I think you, you have superstar individuals in the sense of a traditional superstar, like, you know, a single... Uh, it could be a pop singer, for example, that takes most of the market share in the music industry. I think that's where the analogy comes from. Mm -hmm. But what you now have is superstars in, in a lot of fields. Uh, we have, for example, you know, the potential for you know, I say a superstar professor to teach a class with millions of people right. using the power of the internet. And you also have the potential for superstar businesses. Again, we've mentioned Netflix several times, but uh, you don't really need a variety of video rental outlets when you have one superstar one that can touch everybody simultaneously through the network. Right, right. So uh, somebody with a slightly better product or a slightly better marketing might corner an entire market very easily because they can serve everyone. And then uh, once you become the person who serves everyone, there's a lot of network effects to being that person that puts you in a yeah. better position. Traditionally, if you're in a town and you're like, say, running a business, like a video rental spot, you just have to be the best video rental spot like in that neighborhood. Right? right. You just have to be good enough that uh, people close to you will be willing to drive there and purchase your service. Right. Whereas now you're competing with the whole world, potentially. Right. Another reason that things might be different now is just how much labor do we ultimately need? You know, do, do humans, I think traditionally we imagine that humans just need more and more and more forever and ever. But it's not necessarily the case, again, when, when the computer is sort of swallowing all these different tasks... At what point does a computer come very close to fulfilling a lot of your needs? Right. One thing that's really overlooked in all this is just how efficient we're becoming right. as we also become uh, larger. Yeah, because so many things can be done virtually and uh, we expect that to just increase and increase. It's possible that you could really efficiently provide for a lot of needs just with a single fast computer basically and the reason that doesn't seem far-fetched um, is we see that now i mean it's an extrapolation from now so in, mm -hmm. it, the number of of things that i get from my laptop now i mean it's it's a it's a full-fledged entertainment device it's a full-fledged educational device yeah uh it's a full-fledged communication device yeah um it's a whole I, office worth of working uh right it's, it's a full-fledged shopping device shopping yeah. uh it's a full-fledged production device uh mm. for making things um the the only thing that it, I mean, it doesn't do a couple things. It doesn't feed me. It doesn't clothe me. It doesn't house me. Right. And it doesn't, you know. It doesn't uh, recreate some of our senses. It's still only audio and visual. Right. It doesn't, it uh, doesn't treat me health-wise, although it can give me information about uh, health matters. Um, so, yes, there, there are plenty of things that the computer doesn't do, but just the number of things that it does now, as opposed to what I recall it doing, say, 20 years ago, right. is, is so much greater that it, it doesn't seem crazy to imagine uh, the computer swallowing more and more areas. And mm -hmm. then you essentially have one product, right, which is going to be brought to market by somebody, but by very technical people and possibly one superstar business right. that then potentially uh, swallows up uh, most of the other businesses we might imagine. Now, that's getting a little bit you know, far-fetched and into the future, mm -hmm. but... It it's, does feel like things are heading in that direction. 
Yeah, well, it sounds like that's a possible future anyway. But even if it's true that we have, you know, unlimited human desires and will endlessly invent, you know, meaningless badge value type things to uh, to sate those desires, it still is, I think, legitimate to realize that between superstar effects and the just explosive growth of computer potential, we're not going to have the same amount of jobs going forward uh, as we had during the peak of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, and, and that was a relatively short amount of time in human history anyway that we had that many jobs for people. Uh, we might want to start thinking about what we would expect to see in a world that had chronic technological unemployment problems like the ones that we're describing. Right. Um, because uh, I'm not sure that we can, I mean, especially since we've just had a major global financial catastrophe, I'm not sure it'd be even possible to disentangle right now what's structural, what's cyclical, what's caused by technology, and what's caused by slack demand. But um, Right, and it's possible that, you know, more traditional causes of unemployment and that structural unemployment caused by technological unemployment are overlapping a, a great deal. So, for example, one story that might be plausible is that, yes, we had a, you know, recession that is caused by, you know, market forces and demand shocks and et cetera. But, you know, a bad economy may drive businesses to further pursue automation as opposed to labor. Um, So these things can feed into each other uh, very directly. So there may be components of what's going on that are, technological and cause, but it's very hard to disentangle that. Right. Well, and there are also maybe components, like you just said, of what's going on now that are going to cause future technological unemployment. Like if a company that's laid off a bunch of workers because of the economy finds itself then wanting to make an investment, this might be a time when uh, investing in automation rather than new employees makes sense because then that next time there's a shock, (laughs) <laughs> you're you're better prepared. You're insulated. You're insulated. If you have to let people go, the machines will still work. Right. Um, so there's a potential like uh, connection between those things. Yeah. But I think it's also worth trying to disentangle something else that's a little bit uh, blurry, which is the difference between technological unemployment and technological inequality. Mm-hmm. So technically speaking, these can overlap quite a bit. For example, a lot of the trends that we discussed earlier that are laid out in the Race Against the Machine book, the increasing value of capital versus labor, increasing value of high-skill jobs versus low-skill jobs, and the superstar effect, Mm -hmm. um, one of the primary impacts of those is just that the average uh, worker or the median worker gets less share of the the. of right. the fruits of the economy. Right, because more of the value is going to the person who created the technology or the person who bought the technology, not to the person who's still working in that, you know, whatever part of the job still requires a human. Right. Yeah. And, and whereas I think the evidence for actual un- structural unemployment is is not really there yet, although we can speculate about what we might see, there's quite a bit of evidence that there's a lot of inequality that's been happening and increasing uh, for a while well, now. Well, that's an effect you would expect, right? If there were technological unemployment, you'd expect to see an increase in inequality. Possibly first. Um, and, you know, it's pretty well established that we have been seeing an increase of inequality of this type, uh, as far as median worker goes, since about the 70s, which is also coincidentally around the time that affordable mini computers hit the market and started to get seriously adopted in business. So... 
So there's a possible connection there's, there. There's something but, that doesn't feel like totally far-fetched, although it's certainly not a scientific connection, that uh, basically uh, alongside the computer revolution, there's been a decoupling of uh, median income with, with uh, total um, wealth creation, and then that represents the beginnings of this technological unemployment problem that we expect to, to really take off in the future. Right. I was just going to further draw the, the connection between unemployment and inequality in just the sense that if you are automating a particular job, right, you're not necessarily just replacing that job. What you're doing is you're making it so that job can be done more cheaply than the labor used to cost for it, right? So ostensibly, if, you, if the workers are willing to uh, work for less and less, or work for less than, say, the cost right. of buying and maintaining a machine, right? Mm -hmm. Then none of these technological changes have to cause unemployment. They just lower the They just cause the wage wages. pressure, which is its own type of problem, maybe, if it's, if it's bad enough. Well, it definitely stirs on the, the inequality that we're talking about. Right. But then eventually it does, I think, lead to unemployment in the fact that it will eventually will cross a threshold to where it's not going to be worth even the worker's time to show up. Okay, so we've laid out the the idea of what is technological unemployment, uh, what are the major disagreements about it, and we've laid out why we feel, you know, it, it definitely is something to, to be concerned about uh, potentially either already happening, um, although it's hard to say that for sure, but definitely something that we can might expect to happen soon uh, and be something that society has to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so it, I think it's worth talking about what, what are the impacts of that if this thesis turns out to be true and how are we going to need to respond, right? Um, and what happens in a world where we're just not, you know, finding enough work for enough people? Well, it could be catastrophic, right? I mean, if we don't do something about it and the labor force participation gets low enough uh, or unemployment gets high enough, whichever, you know, those statistics are related. So whichever way, we're going to see the bottom fallout on the consumer economy. I mean, this is what Martin Ford writes about in his book. And this is the, the doomsday scenario that I think is why this is so important to think about. We have this society set up where, you know, at least one person in every household has to be working for people to live and participate. Um, and we may just not have that many right. jobs. That, that may not be the case. So that doesn't mean we're going to be poor. Uh, we'll have stuff to spare. Uh, and the price of stuff might come down considerably. But we need to decide if we want a world where people have to work to live, then we're going to have to figure out some other way for them to work. And if we decide that creating artificial useless work for people is too complicated or too prone to corruption, or we don't want that for some reason, uh, which I think is reasonable uh, to maybe decide, then we have to decide, do we want to have a world where people work to live? Right. At a certain point, even if there's demand that we could create and products that people don't really need, and even if there's uh, jobs, you know, hey, digging we, virtual ditches, yeah, we can, we can keep this thing going, right? right? But do we want to at a certain point, right? At, at a certain point, are we wealthy enough where we can just kind of call off the current sort of market system and say, uh, we're going to stop tying... Or cordon it off to deal with the things that are still scarce, of which there'll be a few, like maybe land or energy or something... Uh, but but then provide people with either directly or through a income or whatever with what they need so that they don't uh, right. have to work to live. So just just to clarify what you, I think you mean by that, uh, like you're talking about a situation where 
people are not forced to work for a living. Maybe they have a basic income guarantee or some other means of, of acquiring their necessities. Right, or maybe there's just better social right. safety net or something. Yeah. But there's still a parallel economy. Um, there's still businesses. There's still capitalism happening in parallel. So I, so I think, yeah, one response is to kind of, you know, uh, start moving off of this wage labor system. And I think the other response um, that's maybe less radical or more radical, depending on your point of view, uh, would be, uh, you know, I mean, part of the problem here is is the human skills, right? Being outpaced. And so, I mean, one response right. that we probably should have, at least in the short term, because it certainly will make this uh, less disruptive, is to pursue education, uh, to pursue training. Well, that's totally um, uncontroversial. Obviously, we should right. pursue education, but I think, as we mentioned before, education may not be fast enough or good enough to really make people able to compete. Which is why I think the more radical version of that that you eventually have to get to is you actually have to make people functionally smarter. We can't just elevate everybody to the level of, say, like Einstein. No, um, we don't know how. We don't know how to. We do don't even that. know how to elevate one person to the elevator uh, to the level of Einstein right, right. now. Um, but. But we could pursue as a technological goal um, the augmentation of human intelligence, and that could be pursued both like through genetics, which that's a bit of a crapshoot because I don't know that we even have uh, proof in nature of a smarter than human organic brain. I don't even know if we well, know that's, that that's why possible, I mentioned right? Einstein because right, he's proof of like the upper level. Upper level, of what, right? What so we could maybe do. even just get more consistent with creating geniuses. That sounds plausible, but. Um, uh, we could also work on augmenting human brains through better and better AI and computer assistants that aren't actually changing the substrate of your brain, but are doing um, a lot of your memory work for you and uh, you know, offloading tasks that they're better at. We might be able to come up with something that, that has the flexibility of a human brain, but the tremendous recall of a computer system or something. Uh, so there might be a slightly less Frankenstein-y version of that augmentation theory that uh, you know isn't maybe quite as radical um in terms of you know messing with the stuff of life or something but uh but might might provide us with an ability to create some jobs for humans uh that computers alone don't do as well as humans do uh hooked up to an appropriately designed machine you know all right uh so i think we're gonna end it there but uh, hopefully we've summarized what technological unemployment is what the controversy about it is and why we at least feel that it's something to be concerned about yeah uh, potentially happening now and in the near future that's uh that's it uh thanks for listening and um come back next week To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.